right. You guys can have a seat. Before we get into our message today, I want to I want to have a time of prayer, um, and I want to begin that with a little bit of update on my health. I know for those of you who've been around our church for the last month or so, I've just been battling some up and down sickness. Uh, doctors really haven't been able to explain what's going on. Thought I was getting better. Uh, had a rough night last night. Basically, I don't know what's going on, but my immune system is ex- very, very weak. And so little things are just triggering me. And I've been sick for about five weeks now, and I'm just, I'm tired of it, <laughs> to be quite honest. Normally on Sunday mornings, I'm, you'll see me before service shaking everybody's hands and sitting down and talking with everybody. If you're a guest with us, that is normally the treatment that I give our guests. And then after the service, I stand at the front door shaking everybody's hand, hugging everybody's neck as many as I can. I'm not doing that today. I'm trying to stay away. I'm not contagious, but all of you guys are carrying New York City germs, okay? And so I need to stay away from you guys to protect my own self. So in a moment, I'm going to ask someone to come up and pray for me that God would heal me. Uh, This has been a long time. Uh, I'm typically a pretty healthy guy, and so this is... uh, been quite a setback for my family and I. Um, But I also want to give you an update on Pastor Kyle. Last week, Kyle was on a well-deserved vacation for the last three weeks when I've been sick and out of the office mostly. Um, He has been holding this church together uh, like he always does. So he took a well-deserved vacation last week, and I'll let him explain it when he gets back. But basically, a freak accident that happened at their hotel uh, left uh, Kyle and Colette's daughter, Brooklyn, with a broken clavicle, Three, blo- three broken bones in her foot and a hip contusion. She's five years old. And so she's in, I don't think she's in like a body cast, but I think she's in a whole lot of slings and stuff like that right now. And on top of all that, Pastor Kyle's wife, Colette, has been very, very sick this weekend. So he's at home right now caring for his family. As all of this has been happening, I'm just reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. When he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, those, who, those of you who know me know that I'm not, I'm not prone to overspeak. I'm not prone to over-spiritualizing things. Amen. But I am beginning to get the sense that there is an otherworldly attack on our church right now. You know, this has been an unbelievable start of the year for our church. You know, our church is 20 years old, a little over 20 years old. And from our inception, one of the goals was that we would be self-sustainable as a church. That's the goal of a church plant, is that you'll be able to, you know, you receive funding from other churches to kind of help you get started. And it took our church over 20 years But we finished last year financially in a good position, and we budgeted this year for our church to be financially self-sustainable. That's something that this church has been praying for for two decades. Which is great because so many churches over the years have provided for us, believing that God wanted to do something great in our church. 
now that we're self-sustainable, we've now committed that 10% of everything that comes into our church goes out into things like church planting. Next week, one of our church planters is going to be preaching with us on Sunday. And we are committed to helping churches in the same way that other churches have helped us. But, I mean, that it just seems strange to me that when we announce to the church that we've this goal that we've been praying for for decades that we've hit, and not only that, in January, and for the first two months of this church, or for first two months of this year, we've had the best start to our year attendance-wise that we've ever had. Five years ago, we averaged 35 to 40 people in worship on Sundays. In the first two months of 2020, we've averaged over 150. Okay. On top of that, January 22nd, we had a prayer meeting that... I feel like was probably the most, we've had several prayer meetings at our church over the years. We had a prayer meeting on January 22nd that I walked away from that prayer meeting feeling like God was beginning something in our church. In that prayer meeting, we had people coming forward, asking for the whole church to lay hands on them and pray over their marriages. We had people asking to pray over their children that, you know, with struggles and all of that there. We had people confessing sin. We had, uh, there were, We prayed for spiritual awakening. And, you know, I left that prayer meeting just on such a high thinking, wow, like there is, God is, there is something unique about this year that I feel like God has great plans for this church. And it was that night that I got hit with the sickness. And I just pretty much hasn't let up for a month. And like I say, I'm cautious about using big language or over-spiritualizing. But it's not just me. It's not just usually when, when the enemy wants to attack a church, it goes after the leadership. Amen. It goes after their family. And so in, in Kyle's case, it goes after his children. But not only that, there's many people in our church right now that are just going through like out of the ordinary suffering. And I believe that that is the enemy trying to take our eyes off of what Jesus has for us in, in 2020 and beyond as a church. And so I believe there are spiritual attacks happening in our church right now. I don't know what it is, but I get the sense that God wants to do incredible things in your lives and in our church. And it really does make me think that we have an enemy that wants to prevent the glory of the gospel going forth in this church and in this city. And so I want to take a moment and ask for you guys to pray. I ask that you would pray for me. You know, I would ask everybody to come forward and lay hands on me. But like I say, I don't want to get whatever you're carrying. I want to ask you to pray for Kyle. And then I want to ask you to pray for the, that the Holy Spirit would protect our church from the evil one. And that we would believe in faith that there, there is neither height nor depth nor anything on this earth or in the unseen realm that can stop what Christ wants to do in us and through us this year. And so if you guys would, we're going to take about 30 seconds. If you guys would, just pray silently to yourselves. And then I'm going to ask one of our deacons, Eleanor Latouche, if she would come up and say a prayer for me and Kyle and for our church. So you guys pray. Lord, we come before you humbly this morning. You are a magnificent God, and you are the master of our lives and the author of our destiny. We know that you are with us in this moment and that the evil one might be impacting our families and our health 
and our church and our sense of self, that people may be anxious and depressed and lonely and ill and struggling to know where the next dollar is coming from. But Lord, you are Lord of all of this. And you say that when we turn to you and we call your name, in the name of Jesus, that that Satan and his demons will tremble. And Lord, we call on you now in the name of Jesus to come and bring healing to Will and wholeness to him, restore his immune system so that he's not vulnerable to every passing illness. Lord, we know that he's your servant and that you've put him here and that he is leading us and doing mighty things at crossroads all in your name. And we ask for your hedge of protection to be around the congregation and the leadership, Lord. Give all of us strength and wisdom to know when we are stepping outside of your will. And when we are in your will, Lord, we ask you to bind Satan and put him behind us and let us only have eyes for you and not be discouraged or distraught at the things that are happening in the world. We know that that life is difficult, um, but that we can do all things through you. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 15, and this has been the theme verse for us over the last uh, several weeks. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the, this is the theme verse Uh, that we've been looking at over the last six weeks. And this is a metaphor that Jesus gave us uh, for how we grow as his disciples, how our lives can produce something of worth, how we can bear fruit, Jesus says. A healthy plant bears fruit. And Jesus says if we are the branches that are connected into the vine, which is Christ, his power will go through us and we will bear spiritual fruit. And Jesus says that if we abide in him, meaning that if we root our lives in his love for us, then what it will lead to is greater joy in our lives and gratitude. And then it will give us the power to be the person that God has prepared us to be. And this is actually a very radical notion because many people still feel like Christianity is the opposite of this metaphor. Uh, Many people still live under the lie of religion that says, if I bear enough fruit, if I do enough, if I can produce something of value with my life, then God will abide with me. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I abide, you abide in me first. You receive my love and forgiveness. You don't earn that. I freely give that. You receive that. You don't earn it. And you rest in what I have given you freely. Not because of your own uh, impressiveness, but only because of my love for you. You receive that, and then your life and your behavior will follow as I change you from the inside out. But many of us still live with this warped religious mindset that we have to change ourselves from the outside in so that God will first love us. But the scriptures say, and Jesus testifies, that he wants to change us from the inside out. And this is good news for everyone in this room, especially for those of you, and this should be all of us, who feel like we don't measure up. 
This is good news for anyone who feels like, you know what, maybe God, I, God can't use me in any impressive way because of my past or because of my current failures. This is good news for those of us who are tempted to think that about our lives because the message of the gospel is not do all these impressive religious things and then God will accept you or use you in some exciting way. The message of the gospel is that God has already accepted you through Christ. He has forgiven you. He has given you His Spirit and now wants to empower you and release you into the world for His glory. That's the message of the gospel. Abide first, produce second. Not the warped religious mindset of produce and then God will come and abide with us. It's important that we understand this. And we're ending our study on John chapter 15 this week. And I want us to look at two statements that, from Jesus that demonstrate that when we have been overwhelmed by the love of Christ, it ought to shape the way we demonstrate love and generosity toward others. It ought to shape the way we speak about Jesus to others if we have experienced his love. And in addition to Jesus' teachings, I want to give a story, a case study from the Gospels of a man who was so overwhelmed by the love and mercy of Jesus that it shaped him, changed him, transformed him, and it led to great spiritual fruit in his life. Not because God demanded it from him and told him, you've got to do this, but because God changed him from the inside out and then he desired to live the life that God had called him to live. It's a story of an unlikely man who Jesus saved and used greatly for his glory. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to first see these statements of Jesus. The first one is in John chapter 15, verse 12, or beginning in verse 12. It says, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus ends this statement by saying, These things I command you, so that you will love one another. And after speaking these words, Jesus was soon arrested. He was tried unfairly, unjustly, and he was executed on a Roman cross. Jesus stood in the place of a sinner named Barabbas, who was guilty. And even though Jesus was innocent, he took the punishment of Barabbas. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus and we understand the story, it wasn't just Barabbas whose place Jesus took on the cross. He took our place. We were the ones guilty of sin. We were the ones deserving of death on a cross. But Jesus, even though he was innocent, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and was obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus took your place on the cross. That was your cross. And Jesus took your place. And Jesus took your sin, your shame, your fear, your anxiety, your worry, your guilt. He took it. The Colossians says those things he set aside because they were nailed on the cross. 
Those things were nailed on the cross once and for all. And then Jesus goes in the grave, but praise God, the grave couldn't hold him. And after three days, Jesus stepped out of the tomb. Uh, Some of those who went to Israel with us last year, today's our one-year anniversary from when we were at an empty tomb in Jerusalem. I've looked in it. It's empty. Jesus steps out of the grave, and then he goes and appears to his disciples. And listen to what he says to his disciples when he sees them. John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Man, don't you just want to hear that from Jesus with you today? Peace be with you. Jesus speaks that over you this morning. Peace. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Be with you. And I love what he says here. You want to know what God's will for your life is? This is it. Jesus says to them, As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. You want to know what the will of God for your life is? What, the, what you were put on this earth to do? This is it. The way that the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is now calling you and saying, you, the, the way that the Father has sent me, I'm now sending you out into the world. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Two statements I want us to kind of zero in on, or three statements to zero in on. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says. That's his commandment. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And I want you to hold those statements in your mind as we look at the story of a life changed by Jesus from the inside out. And what I think that Jesus is telling us in these passages and what he's telling when he tells his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. The grace that you've experienced from God, the forgiveness, the mercy, the salvation, the hope, the joy, that was never meant to terminate with you. Do you understand that? Like what any good thing that God has given you, he didn't give that to you so that you can put it in a safe and hide it for yourself. He gave you all the good things He has given you so that you can take those things and give them to others and explain to to others how they can know the joy of Christ. And so I want us to look at the story of a man who was demon-possessed. And the point I want you to see from this story is from Mark chapter 5. And this is the point I want to make. Those who have experienced the love of Jesus tell others about the love of Jesus. That is the fruit of that the gospel of Jesus produces in our lives, or it ought to produce in our lives. We take what God has done for us, and then out of gratitude, we share with the world what He has done with us, so that they may know. So I want us to look, this is a case study, because you've been going, okay, abide in Christ, abide in Christ, and you bear much fruit, and you're like, what does that actually look like? I want to give you a story of a man who experienced Christ, it changed him from the inside out, and he bore spiritual fruit in his life. So we begin, Mark chapter 5, they came, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they were in a boat, they were traveling, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, this is a Roman-occupied, non-Jewish territory, the land of the Gerasenes, the Decapolis. Remember, Jesus was Jewish, and not only was Jesus Jewish, he was a rabbi. He was a spiritual leader. There were expectations of him. There were codes that he was expected to abide by as a good Jew and as a good rabbi. And the religious leaders at that time, they thought that anyone outside of Judaism was unclean. 
So traveling to Roman territory would have been seen as dirty. They would say, Jesus, whoa, whoa, you don't do that because you could be defiled by going into that country. You'd be dirty. They thought that if Jesus stepped into that, it would defile him. And Jesus, being a rabbi in their minds, had no business being in an unclean city. But it's not just that he goes to Decapolis. Jesus, I mean, he's always upsetting the status quo. And he just, flew, he just goes, he goes straight into the, 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 the unclean territory. Look at verse 2. It says, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. Now, this gets worse. Not only is Jesus in a non-Jewish city, not, he, he's in a graveyard. Like, that's like the most unclean place you can go. Like, that is where, that, it literally represents death in their minds. And you go to a graveyard, and it's not like you just stroll through a graveyard, a nice little evening walk. Like, you step into a graveyard, that is where, that is unclean territory. And you step into that space, and it will defile you in their minds. And not only that, look at who Jesus is hanging out with. He's hanging out with a man who has an unclean spirit, who's demon-possessed. That would have made the Pharisees and the scribes heads explode. Like they, it, what is Jesus doing there? There could not have been a more unclean, more unfitting place for someone of Jesus' stature to be. Jesus freely and willingly enters into what was perceived to be the most, most filthy of places. Interacting with a man who is clearly unclean, clearly undeserving of the company of, of a religious leader. This is the type of person that no religious leader or no self-respecting person would have approached because to be around them would have meant that you would get dirty. What could Jesus possibly be doing there, interacting with a man like that? Now the gospel writer tells us a little bit about that man with the unclean spirit. It says, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That's an eerie scene, isn't it? Um, it reminds me, I went through a phase as a kid where I was really into scary movies. I don't care for them now. My stomach, my brain, my mind can't handle those things anymore. I mean, I had to walk out of the Joker. I mean, because it was just too much for me. But it was, you know, but when I was a child, I went through a phase. And what I used to do is, many of you guys remember video stores? Remember Blockbuster? If you remember Blockbuster, like we, um, and what I would do, there was a little, there was a video store called Video Bazaar in my hometown, and I would take the tapes from the movies like Chucky or The Exorcist, stuff I wasn't allowed to watch, and I would trade it. I would take, you know, you open the, the brown, th- brown video cases, and I would trade it from like the Sandlot to whatever. And so I'd tell my mom, be like, Mom, I want to rent the Sandlot or like, you know, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks or whatever, you know, I was thinking. And they'd be like, all right, great, or Indiana Jones, Will, great, watch it. And I would go, and then I would, I would sneak this video into my, uh, I had a TV in my bedroom. I can't believe my parents did that, but they did. My kids aren't having that. But I would sit in my bedroom, and I would, what I would do is I would set the previous channel button to Disney Channel. 
and I'd be watching this movie, and any creak that I heard in the house, I'd hit the previous channel button, and my parents thought, like, oh, man, he's such a good kid watching Disney Channel at 1 in the morning. And the thing is, I didn't even enjoy the movies because every creak in the house, I was constantly hitting previous channel. But I read this passage, and it reminds me of the, all these weird, low-budget horror movies that I watched. Children of the Corn, Exorcist. It's just, like, this is just an odd situation, isn't it? You've got a man who no one can subdue him anymore. He's a human, but he's almost beast-like. No one, he's isolated. He's living in a graveyard. He's breaking chains. He's screaming. He's cutting himself. And this is what Mark tells us this man's life has been reduced to. And this is probably in the middle of the night. It's in a graveyard with a beast-like human creature who's clearly insane. He's human, but there's something other about him. And there's a sense in which these demons that he's possessed by, this sin that has stolen his humanity, is affecting him in these these unbelievable ways. And if you look at where he's at spiritually and emotionally, we look at this story and we're like, I cannot relate to a guy who's possessed with demons. But the more you really look at what's going on in his heart and in his emotions, you go, maybe you can relate to this guy. Because look at what's going on in his life spiritually and emotionally. Look how he's described. He's overcome by darkness and sin. Many of us have felt that. We feel like there's a sin in our lives that we can't seem to shake. And we feel overcome by it. And then many of the things that plagued him are things that many of you in this church, I know, are wrestling with. Isolation. He's all alone. He's lonely. That's what he's battling. Many of you are battling that as well. He's in bondage. Even though the chains can't hold him, he still, still feels like a prisoner in his own body. He feels like there's no capacity to break free from the chains that are holding him. How many of you have felt that way? He's suicidal. He's obsessed with death. Many of you have walked that, that road. He has mental illness. He's not in his right mind. He's unable to see or think clearly. Many of you who've been in the throes of depression know what it's like to not be able to see through the fog. He was naked. And when the scriptures speak of nakedness, there's both a literal meaning. He's literally naked in the graveyard. But it's also synonymous with feeling ashamed. You know, I mean, in Adam and Eve, we we were naked and we felt ashamed. How many, I mean, many of us are walking with shame and carrying shame from our past failures or from even maybe our current failures. And then he's even dealing with cutting. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. When you see teenagers, you know, dealing with this this tragic thing, this man was dealing with it as well. There's nothing new under the sun. And many of these traits, maybe for some of you, they feel too familiar. And you're like, I never knew I could relate to a demon-possessed man living in a graveyard, but we can. And maybe you've experienced these feelings, these emotions. You're lonely, you're ashamed. Maybe you've considered death or suicide. And you wonder if any escape or any relief or rescue is possible. Or if God could actually accept you and love you and then use you in any meaningful way in this life. This is a man who has been overtaken by darkness. But watch what happens when this man comes into the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. It says, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. 
For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And this man looks at Jesus and begins speaking. And he's like, All right, Jesus, just tell me what you want from me. I, I'll, whatever you want, I'll do it. He's trying to bear fruit so that Jesus can abide in him. He's saying, whatever you need me to do, Jesus, just don't torture me. See, he's living under that religious mindset that says God wants to punish us if we don't shape up. And so he's saying, God, tell me what I got to do. What do I got to do, Jesus, to get you off my back? What do I got to do? And Jesus is like, that is not what I came here to give you. And Jesus looks at him and asks him, what is your name? I love the tenderness of Jesus with those who are hurting. When do you think was the last time that anyone cared enough about this man to ask his name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And we find out that this man is not even speaking for himself at all, but he's being controlled by a legion of demons. Now, legion is a Roman military term. It's a unit of soldiers, as many as 6,000 men. Roman legions were known for brutality, destruction, raping, murdering, and pillaging entire cities. And this guy says, my name is Legion, for we are many. There's something dark and otherworldly going on in this man's heart. The kind of person we would look at and go, could God save somebody like that? Like, could God, like, is that... That's the kind of person we look at, and maybe we pray that God could save them, but in our minds we're like, man, I just don't know if God could do that. And it says, verse 10, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And that's where it gets weird, okay? Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, meaning the demons inside this man, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And I love verse 13. It says, so Jesus gave them permission. I love it. He's like, all right, demons, like, go into the pigs. (laughs) Do it, all right? And the unclean spirits came out of the man, entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. If I had a time machine, I would want to see that. You know, that's one of the weirder stories in the Bible. And there's some weird stories in the Bible. This is one of those biblical stories I would want to see. Like, how does that even work? Like, this man, legion, you know, I'm legion, many, and, you know, and Jesus is like, all right, go, just go to the pigs. And then the demons flee this man. They go into the pigs. Pigs jump off into the ocean. It's unbelievable to me. But here's what I want you to see. The evil that was trying to destroy this man whom Jesus loved was in the end destroyed by the, just by the command of Jesus. And the good news for you today is that whatever evil, whatever sin, whatever emotions, whatever destruction is in your life, do you believe that Jesus is greater than those things? See, this is the Christian story. Jesus enters into your life unmoved, unfazed by your past. Jesus moves into your life unfazed by your mistakes and your sins and your failures. Jesus moves into your life unfazed by whatever whatever uncleanliness or shame you feel before God. And he steps into your shame and guilt, not afraid of it, not afraid it's going to 
defile him in any way. He steps right into the worst parts of you and he sets you free from the things that enslave you. And after this happened, this is what I love, we're told in verse 15 that the man was, quote, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Now literally what happened, he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. But spiritually what's going on there? He's clothed. His shame has been taken away. He's sitting. He's no longer pacing and breaking. And I mean, he's resting. He's abiding. And he's in his right mind. God has fully restored him, fully healed him, and he has given him a new beginning. Now, I want us to stop here and meditate on the beauty of this story because this man felt unworthy to be accepted by God. And not only did he feel that way, but everyone else in his life affirmed that about him. Everyone else said he was unclean. Everyone else ignored him. That's why he's living in a graveyard. Because he couldn't live in the community. They cast him out into the graveyard. Nobody wanted to be around him because he was unclean. They, the story that everyone around him told him, you can never be loved by God. You can never be used in community. You are, uh, there, you are nothing. He had written himself off and everyone else had written him off. But Jesus being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, stepped into a boat, went into his city to rescue him from all of his sin and his shame. And when Jesus was done with him, he was new and he was whole. If you are a follower of Jesus in here this morning, that's your story as well. And if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, that can be your story. There is nothing you can do or have done that can separate you from the love of Christ. He freely and willingly steps into the mess of your life so that He can pull you out and bring you into healing and bring you into wholeness. And here's what I want you to see from this story, the way this man was changed. I love this. As he was getting, because we love a good testimony, don't we? Like, we love a good story where somebody's saved by Jesus. But there's always more to the story. Because God doesn't just save us just for the sake of saving us. He saves us for a purpose. God heals us and saves us and renews us for a purpose. And the purpose is to bring Him glory among the nations and among the people. And verse 18 says, as, this, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons, don't you love past tense? The man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be able to go with him. Jesus is getting in the boat, and the guy's like, all right, Jesus, I don't want to live in these tombs anymore. I'm going wherever you're going. I love that. And he, but Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, here's what I want you to do. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This man had been healed. And as he sees Jesus getting into the boat, and he's like, Jesus, don't leave without me. I'm coming with you. Wherever you're going, I'm going with you. Wherever you want me to go, I'm going with you. And this man, see, he had experienced the presence and the power of Jesus. And his reaction was not to sit back in church and go, man, I'm grateful that God saved me. What's for lunch? His response was, God has saved me. Through Christ, I am a new person. Jesus, 
whatever you want from me, I'm yours. And he was willing to go with, he didn't even know where Jesus was going. And he was like, I'm getting in the boat. And one, and one afternoon, one evening in the presence of Jesus, and he's ready to surrender his entire life and his entire will to Christ. And Jesus has another plan for his life, though. Jesus says, I want you to stay here and tell of what has happened to you. Jesus says, you have experienced my grace and my mercy. Now go and tell others about that in your city. And we're told that he did it. And everyone marveled. See, I don't know if you, if you read the rest of the story, um, there's only one man in the Decapolis that was I- I- impressed with Jesus after Jesus healed this demoniac. Everybody else wanted him gone. Like everybody else, they wanted Jesus out of there. They ran Jesus out of town. There's only one man worshiping Jesus in this story, and that's the formerly demon-possessed man. So this is, a, this is a country that is hostile to the teachings of Jesus. But at this moment, and at this moment, this is the only Jesus follower in the city. But he does what Jesus says. Jesus says, go tell everybody what you've experienced. And we're told that he did. And he goes back into the Decapolis, and we don't know what happened and how he did it. But this guy surely was telling everybody what Jesus has done for him. Because about a year later, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus goes back to the Decapolis. He heals a blind man, or he heals a man who was deaf. And instead of running him out of town this time, the people fell at his feet and worshipped him and said they were astonished beyond measure, saying, Jesus has done all things well. What changed? A city with only one believer in Christ, a formerly demon-possessed man. Everyone else hates Jesus. Everybody wants Jesus out of town. Jesus comes back a year later, and they're all falling at his feet, worshiping him. What happened? Most scholars think, and I agree with them, that this formerly demon-possessed man acted as a missionary to the Decapolis for that year, those, that, year that Jesus was away. And he told everybody about Jesus. He told everybody he could... It would listen about what Jesus had done for him. And he said, I believe Jesus can do it for you too. He can heal you from your sickness. He can heal you from your sin. He can heal you from your shame. He can heal you from it all. And this man paved the way for many people to recognize Jesus as Lord. And he did it not by going off to some distant land as like a missionary. He did it by serving Jesus in the ordinary day-to-day life in his city. He abided in the love and the presence and the experience of Jesus that he had and he bore fruit. The way that Jesus loved him, he showed that to others, and people responded by worshiping Jesus. The way Jesus was sent to him, that man saw himself as sent to others. Jesus brought healing to him, and he saw his role in life after that is to bring healing to others. And as your pastor, this is what I want for your life and for my life. Every week we close our services by reading Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now the reason we, clo- we do this at the close of our service every week is because I want you, as you worship here, to experience the, G- the grace of Jesus. I want you, when you come in here and Wanda and her team, their first impressions team greets you, I want you to experience the love of Jesus in the way that we fellowship with one another. 
And then the music begins. And the purpose of the music is to draw your heart into the throne and into the presence of Christ. And for you to proclaim and sing to him and sing loud so all of us can hear as well. You sing that Jesus is Lord and that he is good. And then the sermon, the point of the sermon is for me to open up the scriptures and declare God's truth over your life. And then we take communion. And the purpose of that is to receive the love and the mercy of grace as demonstrated in the cross. To be reminded that every week, I mean, everything we do every week is for the purpose of you to be reminded that Jesus has stepped into your life, into your sin and shame, guilt and fear. He has not held your sin against you, but offers forgiveness and new life. The way we structure everything we do on Sunday mornings is to stir in your hearts gratitude for the gospel. And then at the very end, after we, our hearts have been stirred and hopefully our, our hearts have been awakened to the glory of Christ, at the very end we recite Matthew 28 to remind ourselves that the grace that we've experienced in Jesus was never meant to stop when we leave this room. What we've experienced in Christ, we are called by Jesus. The scriptures say that we are his ambassadors. We're called to leave this room and we're called to speak the name and the glory of Christ to our friends, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our family members, to our barber. I shared the gospel with my barber the other day. Like, I, I, like I, my doctor, I've got to tell him about, my wife get, wrote a note to our doctors when we were in, when I was in the hospital, just telling them what Christ had done for them. We gave them donuts to tell them that we love. We are called, what God has done in our lives, we're called to take that into the world and proclaim the hope that is possible in Christ. The grace of Jesus was never meant to stop with you or is never meant to be something we leave in this room to come back and pick up next Sunday. We're called to take it with us. You are called by God to abide in His grace and then let that motivate you to show grace to others. The spiritual fruit that I want to see in my life and in your lives is that we are all committed to telling others about the power of Jesus and what He's done for us. That's why we have a partnership with Food for the Hungry in the Dominican. Because Jesus told us to. (laughs) Like Jesus told us, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Jesus said, Be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We want to be his disciples in Bay Ridge and in Brooklyn and in New York City, but also to the ends of the earth in Dominican. We're not just doing this because it's something churches are supposed to do. We're doing it because it's something that was commanded by Christ. If you've experienced the grace of Jesus, you take his grace to the nations, and that's what we're doing. And I know that talking about Jesus, we use the word evangelism. That's a really scary word for people. I know that's a scary thought for many of you. You want to keep your faith private. You don't want to annoy people. But let me ask you, do you believe the message of the gospel is good news? And do you believe that the good news of Jesus is not only good news for you, but it's good news for your neighbors? And it's good news for your friends and family? And some of you, you're afraid. You're like, the reason I don't really talk about Jesus is because I, like, I don't want to get asked a question I don't want to answer to. Like, I can't explain the Trinity. I can't explain all those questions that people ask. Like, I don't know enough about it. Like, what this. And we're, we trust the Holy Spirit in your life. Can you do that? Like this, this guy in Mark 5, like he had like just a small encounter with Jesus. He didn't know the ins and outs of Jesus' teaching. He never heard the Sermon on the Mount. But all he knew is that he once was this, but now he's that. And that's a story he could tell, and that's a story you can tell. Jesus, trust the Holy Spirit in your life, and trust that your story is powerful. 
Jesus promised us, after all, I am with you to the end of the age. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. That is, that ought to be, we should probably make a new banner for our church. Just, as Father sent, us, sent Jesus, so he's sending us into the world. We are called by God to go into the world like Jesus to tell people that forgiveness, healing, and joy is possible. Those who have experienced the love of Jesus tell others. Isaac Watts wrote in his famous hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And he reflects on the cross of Jesus and he says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to take communion in a moment. And communion, every week we take communion and what we're doing is we're celebrating what Jesus has done and what he promises to do. And we receive and we're transformed by the work of Christ in the bread and the cup and we walk away from this place with the desire to obey God and live out the calling that he has for our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the mercy you showed a broken man in a graveyard 2,000 years ago. But God, it's not just possessed people in graveyards that you reach out to. God, you... uh, 16 years ago, you reached out to me in a dorm room. And you saved me. And God, many people in our church, God, their stories are that they once were one thing. But you have called them out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. And so, God, we, I pray that we be grateful for that. We are grateful for the cross that you gave your body and your blood so that we could have new life. But, God, I pray that, that we would never take the grace that you've shown us and let it end with us. I pray that we would take it into the world. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys stand. Come and receive the communion. If you need prayer, our deacons are here. We would love to pray with you.